Thank you for leading us in that time of prayer. We're now going to open up uh, to our passage, so please join me in opening up to Revelation 21. And we're going to be starting at verse 1 uh, to verses 5. So Revelation 21, verse 1 through to verse the end of verse 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Why don't we bring this time uh, before the Lord in prayer? Let's pray. Dear Lord, this is your word, your truth. And Lord, as we hear your word proclaimed, open our hearts to receive it through your spirit. And Lord, may uh, it transform and change our lives. May it comfort and lead us this week and beyond. Please do mighty things during this time, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. In life, how awesome are new things? Particularly when we get something new to replace the old. Like how great is it when we finally get a new car? And the old rattling noises coming from somewhere under the hood are gone. And the ride is smooth And there's all these new fancy features that we're excited to test out. Like heated seats. Do we really need them? But are we excited to test them out? Absolutely. Even simpler things like a new item of clothing or a haircut which makes you feel like a million bucks. A new app on your phone which just seems to make life that much simpler. Or a new cafe spot that you discover and you can relax and have that much-needed coffee catch-up. Even animals love new things. Our pet dog back in Bridport loves chasing tennis balls, and we normally give her the old ones once they've lost a bit of their bounce and shine. But if she gets the chance to lay her teeth into a brand-new tennis ball, well, good luck getting it back off her. Because we just love new things. We desire them. We get excited about them. Because whilst the old can be disappointing, the new promises so much. And this is what we observe throughout the whole book of Revelation. As God has been retelling through vivid imagery, history's pattern of the old, of toil, of hardship, of persecution, of war, of burden. But God has also been retelling his promises of the new. 
And in the final two chapters of Revelation, in the final two chapters of the Bible, which begin with these five verses, God is revealing this vivid and glorious image of the promise to make all things new. And for the churches of Asia Minor, who John, the author of Revelation, writes to, who have been suffering persecution under the Roman Empire, this image of the new must have been all the more desirable for them. Because the old, their current life, was such a burden. Perhaps you yourself are growing weary of the old. An aspect of your life is tiring, toilsome, frustrating, and you desperately, desperately long for something new, for things to change. Well, unlike some of the new things of this world which promise so much but themselves become old very quickly, like the new car which soon starts rattling, the item of clothing that goes out of fashion, the new app that becomes outdated and the coffee shop that becomes mainstream and overcrowded. Unlike this, God's vivid and glorious promise to make all things new, it meets and it exceeds our expectations. And so as we explore this glorious picture tonight, I want you to see how God's plan has always been and pointed towards the new. And I want you to see how our small taste of the new now gives us great hope for the day when God will make all things new. So let's dive in and let's explore this glorious picture, this glorious promise of the new. The passage begins with John writing what he saw in this incredible vision. He's this incredible vision he's received from God. And the first thing John describes seeing in verse 1 is a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Before his very eyes, the first heaven and the first earth are replaced by the new heaven and the new earth. In what fashion this takes place, we don't exactly know. But it is apparent there has been a renovation. And the old order of life has passed away, whilst the new order of life has been installed. And John describes something perhaps maybe surprising and odd to us at first that occurs in this renovation. He mentions that, there was no longer any sea. And that's because in Revelation, the image of the sea is symbolic for unrest and chaos. If you've ever caught uh, the spirit of Tasmania across the Bass Strait on a wild and windy night, you know how ferocious and chaotic the sea can be, even making it difficult to walk through the ship as it rocks uncontrollably from side to side. This image of there no longer being any sea in the new heavens and new earth illustrates the notion that in the new order of life, chaos no longer reigns. Instead, it will be like looking out across the ocean on a calm day where the sea is like glass. 
there will be precise order and an unspoilt plan in the new. Yet as John looks upon the vastness of the new heavens and the new earth, he then describes more specifically in verse 2 what he saw next. The holy city, the new Jerusalem. As we picture the city of Jerusalem, we might picture a mighty city full of power, prosperity and popularity. But what ought to be at the forefront of our minds is that Jerusalem is known as the dwelling place of the Lord. Since humans were banished from the Garden of Eden, and more notably, we were banished from the presence of God when we rebelled against Him, we, humans, had no way of dwelling with God, of being in His presence. Because unrighteous, unholy, impure people cannot be in the presence of a righteous holy and pure God. But God still longed to dwell with his people. And so what we see throughout history, God has been creating avenues for humans to dwell in his presence. We observe this when he entered into a special covenant relationship with the Israelites, which resulted in the construction of a temporary tabernacle that became God's dwelling place. Yet only the priests of Israel could enter into the tabernacle under very particular circumstances and conditions. But then after many years of traveling in the wilderness and from region to region, under the reign of King Solomon, a permanent temple is constructed in Jerusalem. And because of the temple's location in Jerusalem, the entire walled city became known as God's dwelling place. To the original audience, seeing the image of the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, is much more than just an old city being rebuilt. It is an image of God coming to dwell with his people once again. And so when John describes the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, we don't hear a description of bricks and mortar, but of a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. This image of a bride throughout Scripture and in Revelation is a picture of the church, the people who Christ, the husband, has made a commitment to who he has redeemed. And many of us know the honor, the privilege, and the joy of being invited to a wedding celebration. But to be the bride of a wedding celebration, as all the family and friends await eagerly in the pews, with the groom standing at the front with a massive smile, fidgeting hands, Eyes fixed on the door at the back of the room in great anticipation as at any moment his beautiful bride will appear and enter. And in the vision John sees, we are the beautifully prepared bride. The church is the bride of Christ. His beloved who he, just like any husband, is eagerly waiting for the wedding day 
when he can dwell with his bride. And so the vision John sees here is the welding together of two common biblical images. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, God's dwelling place coming down out of heaven. And in the new, God's dwelling place is with his bride, his church, his people who are beautifully prepared to reside with their husband. And as we look at verse 3, John hears this great, loud voice coming from the throne. It is the voice of God declaring precisely this. He says, Look, or behold, God's dwelling place. Or more literally, this could be translated, His tabernacling. God's tabernacling is now among His people. And He will dwell. He will tabernacle With them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Can you see how God's plan of making all things new has always been and has always pointed towards God dwelling with his people? From eternity past, that has been his plan. When you picture heaven, what will heaven be like? When all, things are mu- when all things are made new, what do you picture? What comes to mind? What do you get excited about? Is it the fact that you get to dwell perfectly with God forever? Or does your mind drift to other, more trivial things that make you excited? Perhaps a helpful question for us all to consider is, do I long and enjoy dwelling with God now on earth? Do I yearn to reside with God in prayer? Or am I too distracted by other things and other thoughts? Do I enjoy reflecting upon the glories of God or upon the glories of myself? Do I gladly obey God by walking in step with His Spirit? Or do I seek to do the bare minimum out of duty and instead satisfy the desires of my flesh? Do I cherish singing praises to our God? Or has all the enthusiasm in my heart vanished? If you're anything like me, then your answers to these questions may sting a little. Because I know I certainly get distracted by the many things bouncing around in my brain whilst too infrequently pausing to dwell with God in all his glory and splendor. Yet, what I want us to see and what we see throughout Scripture and in this passage is that God's grand plan, which he is ecstatic about, has always been to dwell perfectly with his people to remove the old and make all things new. And what I want us to see in this passage is that the culmination and climax of making all things new is the greatest and most desirable thing which all history has been pointing towards, to dwell with God. But before this can occur... In verse 4, we see that the old order of things must pass away first. 
And in this verse, as the great loud voice from the throne continues, we see the effects of the old order of things being removed. He declares that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, that there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Because in the old order of things, which is our current life, death exists. Mourning, crying and pain exist. But this is not God's desire. God's desire is to dwell with his people. Throughout the book of Leviticus, which is all about the procedures of holiness, purity and atonement required by the Israelites for God to dwell among them in the tabernacle, in the second last chapter of Leviticus, God outlines the reward for obedience. He declares in verse 11 and 12, I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. But in the second part of that chapter, God also outlines the punishment for disobedience. And just like Adam and Eve, who could not uphold their own holiness and purity and were banished from the presence of God, likewise, the Israelites could not uphold the requirements of holiness and purity either. And they were exiled from dwelling with God. And what becomes of a people who are separated from God because of sin and unrighteousness? Well, they are subject to the old order of things. And in the old order of things, humans have become subject to death, enslaved to death, swallowed up by death. With the absence of God, death reigns. And where there is death, there is mourning, there is crying, there is pain. But God cannot just rid the world of death and make all things new because the consequence of our sin is death. And in Hebrews 8, we read that it says the old covenant, where the people we hear in Leviticus are under, it was not sufficient. But it was a shadow of what is in heaven. That is why we received a new covenant, because the first covenant depended on our ability to remain holy and pure. But we were unfaithful, and therefore we could not dwell with God and became subject to death. Which is why God established a better, a new covenant, one that didn't depend on humans, but on Christ. That is why Christ died on the cross. He who was holy, righteous, and pure died for the unholy, unrighteous, and impure, so that those who were subject to the punishment of death could be atoned for, so that they could be forgiven, so that they might be able to dwell with a holy, righteous, and pure God. That is why sinners who do not trust in themselves for salvation, but who repent of their unholiness, unrighteousness and impurity and completely trust in the atoning and sacrificial death of our holy Jesus, receive not death, but life 
They receive life because they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells in a saved sinner's heart. Can you see that in the new covenant, God dwells with his people once again? Through the Holy Spirit, he dwells with his people once again. That is why Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says to the believers in the church there, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? The shadow has always existed of God's grand plan. Since God dwelled with his people in the Garden of Eden, to the tabernacle, to the temple in Jerusalem, to now the new covenant where he dwells in a believer through his spirit. But even though the new covenant is superior to the old covenant, because God has taken away the punishment, the consequence of our sin and death, yet the realm of sin and death still remains, doesn't it? Death, mourning, crying and pain still remain in our world. And this leaves us with an awkward question. A question I'm sure you've all struggled with. A question most of the world struggle with. A question I'm sure the churches in Asia Minor who received the letter of Revelation are struggling with. Why does God continue to allow suffering, particularly towards Christians? Well, your initial response might be that suffering is a result of our sin. Our rejection of God, our rejection of God's good plan and design brought chaos, disunity, unrest and suffering into the world. Which is true. Sin brought death, mourning, crying and pain. And as long as there is sin, there will be suffering. But Romans 8 also tells us that creation was subject to this frustration, to this suffering by God. God has a use, a purpose, a meaning for our suffering. God has a purpose for coronavirus. God has a purpose for our heartbreak. God has a purpose for our frailties and aging bodies. God has a purpose for our limitations and weaknesses. God has a purpose for natural disasters. God has a purpose for our persecution. The purpose of all this, Romans 8 says, is that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that is the initial fruit of the harvest that is going to be plentiful, that amidst the groaning of life, It may cause us to hope, to long, to desire, to wait eagerly for all things to be made new. Because at the root of our sin and rebellion is an inability to conceive the sufficiency of dwelling with God. Therefore, this groaning, this suffering, this frustration is a massive red warning light indicating the devastating results of being separated from God's presence and a reminder that we were created to dwell with God. 
Coronavirus is a reminder that this world is broken and we need rescuing. Heartbreak is a reminder that God's truth is the great comforter. Frailties in an aging body are reminders that there is more to live for than this life. Our limitations and weaknesses are a reminder of God's great power and grace. Natural disasters are a reminder of God's mercy and judgment. And persecution is a reminder that we do not belong to this world, but to the next. That is why in all circumstances we wait eagerly with great hope for the day when the old order of things passes away. When he will wipe every tear from our eyes. When there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. That is why the new covenant, just like the old covenant, is a shadow of heaven. Because whilst we see in part, one day we will see him fully. Whilst we dwell with him in part, one day when he makes all things new, we will dwell with him perfectly. That is why in verse 5, the one who is seated on the throne proclaims, I am making everything new. And he tells John, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And don't we need to hear these words? This has always been God's plan, and history has always pointed towards it. And this is God's plan, because God is most glorified when we, his people, are satisfied by him. When we are satisfied by dwelling with him. And we can bring God the most glory whilst on earth by being satisfied in him. The church brings God glory when we faithfully proclaim with loving hearts amidst a tide that is pulling away from Christ that Jesus alone satisfies, secures and saves. The ministry leader brings God glory when they faithfully serve in the background for God's glory and not their own. The family brings God glory when they give generously, even though money is tight, because God is the one who will provide for our every need. The parent brings God glory when they have to ask their child for forgiveness, because they themselves are not perfect and need Jesus too. The introvert brings God glory when they nervously share the hope they have in Christ with a non-believer. The elderly person brings God glory when though frailties hinder them, they still build up the church with their gifts and proclaim their hope in Christ even as death draws nearer. The teenager brings God glory when they do not join the crowd and instead hold tight to the unpopular lifestyle of being a Christian. The single person brings God glory when they use their gift to disciple young Christians and demonstrate that their identity is in Jesus alone and not in a partner. The homosexual person brings God glory when they abstain from pursuing their sexual desires and pursue a life dedicated to God, which is far greater than any relationship. 
Although we are not in the new heaven and new earth yet, we bring glory to God when we live with the hope of the new heaven and the new earth whilst in the old. But on that most glorious day when the old order of things does pass away and the new heavens and the new earth replace it, when the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven, when God's dwelling place is among his people, when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, when there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, then in that day, God will be glorified forever and we will be sufficiently satisfied for all eternity as we dwell with our Creator, our Saviour and our God who meets and exceeds our every need perfectly. Amen. Dear Lord, we thank you so much That you are making all things new. That from eternity past, it has been your plan that we will be be able to dwell with you, our Saviour and our God. And we thank you, Lord, that you have made a way through Jesus, your Son, who died on the cross for our sins because we could not keep the law. We could not be holy and righteous and pure, but you could be. And you atoned for us, Lord. May we thank you and praise you. And Lord, may we long to dwell with the Spirit now on our time on earth. And Lord, yet during our time, may we long for the new. Lord, when we will be with you, perfectly dwelling in heaven. Lord, help us to keep our minds fixed on heaven and not on earthly things in this life. Help us to remind one another of the glories that await us and the promises that you have given us, for they are marvelous and magnificent. Lord, we thank you for this and pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.